Good day, I'm Anne Dolinchik and you're listening to Coffee Conversations about influencer marketing. We're in conversation with Mike Stopforth in this episode. Mike is a well-known entrepreneur, startup investor, author, global speaker, and a disruption and innovation advisor on a number of corporate boards. In this episode, we discuss digital transformation and what it actually is and how influence marketing fits into the equation. The reason for skepticism in our industry and why it's wrong. Most brands lack of understanding of how influence marketing contributes to sales and the trick brands are missing with their own customers and so much more. A quick thank you to this episode's sponsor, Coffee Monster. This app ensures that you get your coffee whether you're in a rush, in an afternoon slump, or simply need your caffeine fix on the go. It allows you to order and pay for your beverage from your favorite barista or discover a new spot in your area while collecting loyalty points across all stores. Location services will notify the barista when to have your beverage ready so that you can pick it up or have it delivered to your car or office in the blink of an eye. Download the app today from your app store. Good morning, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm sure most of our listeners already know who you are, but for the few that don't, can you please maybe give us an overview of who you are and just what do you do? Sure, Anne. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. We've been chatting about it for a couple of weeks. It's nice to um, nice to bring it to life. Um, I used to I used to run a business called Cerebra, which is a social media agency um, in South Africa, and uh, I ran that business for about thirteen years and left the business um, at the end of twenty eighteen. Um, I took twenty nineteen off to do. Uh, a master's degree and that was a really great experience and had these uh, really big ideas for what I wanted to achieve in 2020 and then uh, the apocalypse hit <laughs> so that was m- more of a chilled year than I expected uh, but most of my time has been taken up um, in consulting and uh, doing a, a fair amount of public speaking um, some facilitation and workshopping work with clients but all around this notion of uh, digital transformation uh, which is a topic that I'm really interested in, partly because um, it's quite close to my experience, but also because it seems to be um, broadly misunderstood and uh, misused as an idea. So yeah, I'm I'm all into um, trying to figure out the the most practical and meaningful ways to engage with the topic, and that's been my preoccupation for the last um, last while. Amazing. And that's exactly why you are on the podcast today as well, to talk to us about this big thing called digital transformation. I myself aren't always sure if I am interpreting it correctly. So I thought if I'm thinking that, most other people are thinking that, and who better to actually talk to us about it and also relate it to the influence marketing space than, than Mike Stockforth. So thank you for that. <laughs> so what is it? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the question, right? Um, towards the, the latter sort of part of my journey at Cerebra, I started hearing that phrase used more and more. And it certainly wasn't the first time I'd heard a phrase adopted like that uh, by the industry or by the media. And, you know, whether it's big data or social media before that or programmatic marketing or any of any of the things that become kind of part of the lexicon of what we do, there's always a, a, a mini red flag that pops up in my mind around Number one, what does this actually mean? And number two, are we all are we all talking about the same thing? Because certainly in business, I would find myself having conversations around a boardroom table with clients where I was fairly convinced that everybody 
there had a different understanding of what we were talking about, um, depending on their own um, objectives when, when the topic of digital transformation came up. So yeah, I really wanted to sit back and understand what, what we really meant. And, and going into that process was, was even more disturbing because almost every definition that I looked up for digital transformation was subtly different or sometimes substantially mm -hmm. different. And added to that, when I was looking for really interesting case studies, I, I was only really finding examples of organizations that had their pedigree in digital already. So it had kind of been born in the internet era, if you like. And I looked at that and thought, well, no disrespect to businesses like Netflix, who have been able to demonstrate a remarkable ability to pivot and adapt in the digital era, but they were born in the digital era. Now, I imagine for them, it's slightly easier to do so with five or 10 years worth of legacy and muscle memory than it is for an organization like, let's say, Old Mutual or uh, General Motors or you know somebody who's been around for decades, centuries in some cases. And, and I think what I wanted to understand more and more is that uh, if there is something called digital transformation, is if that is a quantifiable and real term, what is it? And then what are all the other things that brands could potentially do if for whatever reason they aren't able to transform? So this is a very long answer to your very short question. But where I arrived at was yeah. digital transformation is, a, is, I guess, another way of us saying uh, that we want to build organizations that are adaptable or able to adapt to any type of disruption that is spurred on by technology internally or externally. So when I say internally, I mean in terms of process optimization or staff dynamics or operations or finance um, and externally in terms of the changing face of the customer branding and marketing. And obviously digital as a term is extremely broad. So it relates to uh, technologies themselves. It relates to experiences and, and, you know, kind of platforms that are only possible because of those technologies, but also very unique behaviors that spring out of the use of those things, the combination of those things together. So digital transformation is really an organization's ability to adapt in the face of radical digital disruption or using digital tools to adapt in the face of radical market disruption. And if that's the case, then it, it sort of speaks to a very specific type of leadership and culture that is willing to take a long-term view and willing to be quite critical of past methods and approaches. And, that, and that's often what's missing when organizations try and digitally transform is they do it in short-term projects. They assume that they can build or buy a piece of software that will automatically solve business problems. And, and those things don't seem to work. So it really is a long-term commitment on behalf of leadership to build the type of business that can adapt in the face of radical change. And if that is what digital transformation is, then I'm sure you'll understand there's a lot of businesses that are calling activities, digital transformation that aren't really transformative as such. Oh, that's so interesting because to your points, I think everyone has a different definition depending on where their experience lies. And it became kind of a buzzword. Um, so it really isn't just about implementing something for the next three months, but it needs to kind of be ingrained within the culture over time, which I think a lot of these old legacy companies, which are great, probably find really, really difficult to do. Yeah, I think the key word there is transformation, less, less so digital. Uh, and the reason why I focus on transformation is that it, this is not the only context where we use that word. We use that word in relation to cultural transformation or economic transformation. And when we're talking about those concepts, 
the same rules apply. Organizations that treat these things as window dressing or as a mm. tick on a compliance certificate or as a short-term initiative to please the market or shareholders inevitably find that they've not transformed. It's not something that has happened in a sustainable or meaningful or measurable way. If you really want to transform, we're talking about a quite radical reorienting of an organization in a new direction in order to maintain profitability, in order to maintain growth. Uh, those things are critically important. It's not at the expense of those things. But if you, if you want to especially if we think about just how uncertain and unpredictable the world is right now. If we, if we want to build organizations that will exist in the next 10 to 15 years, you have to be transformative. You, you can't think in the short term. So, you know, every self-respecting business person will say, yeah, sure, I want my business to be around forever. But we typically run organizations with very short-term mindsets and very short-term metrics. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that dichotomy, that paradox is, I think, where, where transformation in any context, whether it's digital or economic, kind of falls over. No, for sure. So when we look specifically kind of at the marketing industry when it comes to this digital transformation, where was that big shift and what was it that everyone kind of started saying, well, we need to do this now or we need to start doing this because if we don't, we're, we're kind of going to be left behind. Yeah, so I think the digital marketing space has... It has evolved predominantly in two ways in my mind. So there, there, is, there are channels that were, we understood them to be traditional channels, walled gardens from each other, whether it was radio or television or outdoor or print, that have slowly but surely as channels, independently from each other, digitized in some way, shape or form. And as they've done so, there's been a degree of convergence. So if a, a radio show can be recorded digitally and distributed on a podcast, is it still radio or is it now digital? You know, if, if, a, if a billboard can show a video that was originally launched on YouTube, is that outdoor advertising or is that digital marketing? So there's the, the digitization of traditional channels has led to a kind of highly converged, what we call omni-channel uh, marketing space. But I, I think that's less important and, and less difficult to understand and embrace than the shift in behavior around the customer, which definitely is more prevalent when it comes to your space around this notion of influencer marketing, which is what we've come to call it. And really yeah. a, another way of looking at influencer marketing is, is the most significant shift in marketing in the last 20 years is that customer markets, um, audiences went from being extremely passive receivers of information and content to being kind of si simultaneous producers and consumers of content at the same time and the social web gave us the opportunity to be publishers and when I say us I mean the ordinary customer to be uh, publishers for the first time ever and that that was pretty radical I mean it's the people talk about that as being as big a shift for society as the printing press was when it was invented at the you know outset of the industrial revolution and I yeah I'm, I'm a firm believer that 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 giving the power of publishing to ordinary people, you know, if, if the printing press made the illiterate literate, then you know, Facebook's uh, and the Twitter's and the YouTube's of the world made the unpublished published. That, that shift is the predominant reason behind why we see, you know, social media has been such a significant 
uh, role player in politics and in in culture today, and and s- significantly from a business perspective in terms of how we think about branding and how we think about the engagement between brands and consumers. The mistake that we've made is that we've taken that ability of customers to build personal brands, build networks of influence, and we've tried to turn it into a traditional channel. So when I think of how most of my clients, or most of the clients I worked with in Cerebra thought about influencers, uh, they thought predominantly about how many followers do they have, predominantly a kind of a reach exposure uh, mandate. And, you know, how can I compare that to other traditional channels? Like a, I mean, it's basically like a human billboard, right? And, and, and then I'll kind of calibrate my thinking around cost and around investment according to that. And that's a very one-dimensional way of thinking about that person's role in the mix. The problem is that influencers embraced that just as much as brands did and said, well, that, that's exactly how I'm going to act then. I'm going to act like a digital billboard. Um, <laughs> and so uh, this sort of one-dimensional approach to this very exciting, I think, component of marketing became became the sort of the, the, the predominant way of interacting, which is a bit of a shame. So do you think influencers kind of started embracing that way of kind of putting their content out there because brands, that's what they were looking for? Or do you think it's the other way around? I guess it's a bit of a chicken and egg uh, situation. But, you know, if we look back at at Facebook's um, evolution as a platform and how powerful it was in terms of, you know, the very purest form of social networking and and network effects Mm -hmm. and the, the power of that organic content and letting things, uh, you know, letting the community decide what was important and unimportant content and all of the, the magic that comes with a, a truly organic social network that's digitized and, uh, you know, given exponential power. The, the trade-off was how do we make money out of this? And instead of, of putting the onus or responsibility on the users to, to help fund the platform, the, the, the decision was made to to favor critical mass and growth at all costs and to rather sell ads and to use customer data to make those ads more targeted so it could compete with more traditional mm-hmm. channels. And that you know, that's a real shame, again, because it just turns it into a very one-dimensional interaction. And, and that I think is what's happening in the influencer space. I don't I don't I don't know who's to blame, but I do think that it that it very quickly became the way of the way of transacting. And you think of all the other possible ways that brands could embrace their, I just, I just think of how many, how many brands spend money on influencers that have a whole bunch of customers in their existing database, existing customers that have significant influence, maybe not at the same uh, levels of reach, but certainly exceeding those big influences in terms of authenticity and, and meaning, meaningfulness that they're not even talking to. Um, that they don't even know exist, customers that are part of their ecosystem that they haven't even begun to reach out to in a meaningful way. So that's a, it should have been that influencer marketing had a closer relationship with CRM or what we traditionally understood to be CRM than it's had to do with advertising. So I suppose then that kind of brings that nano influencer who's kind of already your brand fan versus your macro guys and where the different types of guys fit in. Because I mean, Absolutely. Your brand fans are obviously your biggest influence because they speak to their networks on a daily basis. If someone wants to buy a new phone, they'll ask, hey, guys, which phones you know, do you recommend? Have you had a good experience? Which place, which brand? Versus where then do you use those macro guides? Is it then for purely that word of mouth reach effect 
and not really wanting people to take action, awareness. And then you use your brand fans more of those real influencers who's going to have a huge effect on their networks. Well, I, I don't think it's an either or uh, situation. I think it's, it's possibly a both and. Uh, to borrow liberally from my friend and ex-business partner, Craig Rodney, he would talk about, you know, what do we really mean by influence? When we say influence, we mean the ability to impact behavior, to change behavior. That's not really what we're talking about when we talk about influencers. We're talking about having people see our stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, it should be called reach then. Uh, that, that's re your influence is quite, we're talking about a level of intimacy and trust that's quite difficult to replicate in any other channel. Mm. So, so I, as you've rightly pointed out, I know that there are decisions that I'll make or people that I'll rely on to make decisions in my network that, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily need traditional marketing to endorse or support or justify. The challenge for brands is how do you find, connect with, and build relationships of trust with those individuals in a way that's scalable and meaningful. And as you rightly point out, it probably needs to be part of a broader ecosystem of activity. But the, the thing that blows my mind is just how many fans of organizations are there already, are out there, are people that are, have already of their own accord without being paid anything, without being given a desk drop, without being sent free gifts, are already in love with the brand, already even over a couple of hundred people, but in some cases, a couple of thousand people exert significant influence over them and uh, are, are just not being connected with. Um, are being, and, and, and in a weird way, that actually has a worse impact because what happens is all your genuine fans get neglected in favor of people that really don't care about you or are willing to um, horse trade uh, your brand's exposure for whoever's paying more money at that point in time. So it almost has a negative sort of counter, counter effect. No, absolutely. And I think probably bringing it back to that digital transformation or digital advancements, that's where brands really need to invest in those social media listening tools or AI to kind of find those guys. Because if you build that, that little army of brand fans, oh my gosh, you're unstoppable as a brand. Yeah, so I think that's certainly one part of it, the role that technology plays. In, and, and obviously, it's, I've got to be careful because we're talking about clients, like all clients are the same. And obviously, all clients have got very different uh, challenges in terms of the of size and diversity and, and demographics of their markets. But certainly, for, for a lot of organizations that I've worked with over the last six months that have a lot of retailers that I've spoken to that have quite a, a quantifiable audience, an audience that they can, to a greater or lesser degree, segment and an archetype with, you know, with some intention, the, their lack of understanding into what component of that audience has some influence online is astounding. It's, it's terrifying. And I think it's not that there isn't, that there aren't tools that allow them to do that, as you rightly pointed out, really cool, you know, machine intelligence built into uh, monitoring and listening tools. There's some fantastic and quite pricey <laughs> platforms that allow us yeah. to do that. <laughs> There's also some incredible CRM software that allows us to do that. What doesn't seem to be happening is the integration between those two worlds is, mm. is connecting the the this the user that has willingly and, and so I'm not talking about like prying into people's personal data. I mean people that are willingly no, no, no. and voluntarily 
offered their their i mean i'm i'm an example of that right i don't have significant influence online but i i'm fairly public and my name can be reconciled fairly simply with any account that i have with a bank or uh with an auto manufacturer or an insurer or whatever it might be it shouldn't be that difficult in my mind to connect those two things together but again perhaps this is one of the tricks that was missed by social networks because the ability for me to set up a completely anonymous profile that is in no way, shape or form connected to any social security or identity number means that brands can't really connect with social networks at scale using that kind of unique identifier. And yeah. again, it's, you know, if I had the ability to pay for a, a platform like Twitter to, to create uh, an ad free authenticated ID environment where I know that I can trust that the people who are commenting and adding content to that platform are doing so with a degree of accountability and that brands could then offer that or rather um, Twitter could then offer that to brands as a way to connect with me intentionally based on the data and analytics that I'm producing with all of that, you know, kind of content that I'm creating. That could be quite interesting. However, the counterbalance to that is then would it be Twitter? Right? Or would it be something Absolutely. else? I, I completely understand that um, I'm dreaming of a utopia that possibly can't exist. <laughs> so maybe, Mike, you can build it for us one day and then... <laughs> you think? Solution. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think is the biggest challenges then, besides the ones we've obviously now discussed already, that brands face regarding influencer marketing and an extension that digital marketing component? Yeah, so I think I think I can add to some of the points that we've brought up already around the fact that influencer marketing has kind of been bastardized into a sort of a glorified billboard sales mm. and promotion uh, industry. Um, some of the lack of integration between uh, you know kind of internal uh, CRM data and external marketing data, um, and I'd, yeah, I, mean, I want to add maybe what I'm not seeing in, and this is a conversation I seem to be having with so many clients that are pouring enormous amounts of money into digitizing their marketing and advertising initiatives um, is, is a, a lack of understanding of the decision-making process, the behavioral dynamics, for lack of a better phrase, the funnel that gets mm -hmm. a given customer, um, existing or potential customer, to the point where they make a decision that justifies your your spend. Um, it's so many clients are spending a fortune on marketing, on advertising, on branding work in the digital space, and not understanding how that's contributing towards the moment they make a sale. And because mm. there's there's very little connection between those two things, there's an enormous amount of skepticism that's risen around the effectiveness of this highly targeted and highly measurable space, which is a real shame, again, because it should, by all accounts, uh, offer you a distinct advantage um, in terms of measurement and, and analysis. And I think there's a sense from customers that they're not getting that part from their agencies and consultants is, is how, how directly is this tracking or translating to our ability to make a sale, our ability to convert. 
Now, some industries obviously are far more mature in this in this respect, and certainly, you know, kind of when you think of some of the financial services spaces. But I think, as an example, retail is just there's a long way to go in terms of understanding this dynamic and and, and getting a better sense of of people's behaviors and how that leads to to a converted uh, opportunity. And then, obviously, there's lower volume subscription-based industries that I think are still learning a lot of these lessons. But there seems to me, in my (laughs) perhaps naive stance on this, that there is very little reason not to know whether your marketing spend is working or not. And the question I keep asking my clients is, what, what is the question your customers are asking that only you can answer? What is the need that they have that only you can fulfill? And when is that need or that question being expressed? And are you there when that's happening? And and how effectively are you moving them through that journey so that, you know, they, they get to, I mean, it, it, the number of experiences I've had as I've slowly but surely descended into the black hole of e-commerce uh, over lockdown, <laughs> my, my old bones are slowly but surely uh, becoming <laughs> far more susceptible to the, the, the ploys of digital ads when it comes to, I'm like, oh, another sale. Okay, that must be for me. Um, you are not alone in that. I oh have God, also succumbed. It's, it's another plague. Yeah, me and, me and online shopping. But the amount of times that I've clicked on, a, on, a, on an Instagram ad that has spoken directly to a need that I have at that point in time, because obviously um, these guys Mm. have some very clever ways of understanding what's interesting to us and what we care about at any given point in time, click through and gone to a store or a storefront or even a website that doesn't have a store. uh, And there's absolutely no way for me to complete a sale or to process Uh, it, there's nothing that's tracked through from what I was uh, looking at in, you know, kind of in Instagram or whatever it might be. And, it's just, I imagine, you know, people that have spent an enormous amount of money on this on the other side are going, I just don't feel like it's working. I don't know how or why. And, and that seems a real shame to me. For all the opportunity, a lot of the execution is extremely poor. And I think there's a, there's a big gap there. No, absolutely. And I think it also boils down to, like you were saying earlier, it comes down to those agency partners as well to actually educate and sit with their clients and actually find out what what they want to kind of achieve with this campaign and then delve deeper and ask all those questions we just spoke about. And then with influencer marketing, we can target so specifically different audiences on your Instagrams, on your Twitters, on your Facebook. And like you say, you see something, you're like, oh yeah, I'm interested in that. Um, and our ads is just so much more relatable because you use real people who's doing relatable, amazing things. And that should then if you click on it, click through to something that that person can do or want to do or fulfill their expectation. One of my biggest frustrations, and I'll tell you this, Mike, about I think about two weeks ago, I was online, I was looking for something um, for my garden, I found it and it's like amazing, there's two websites, it looks amazing, and none of them had price lists on it. So then it was like, please email or phone us to get prices. And then I'm already out. I'm like, guys, I don't want to. To my demise, I emailed the wine guys and they were like, send us your your phone number. I want to talk to you. And I was like, no, just give me prices. And then they were like, but, and it was just a whole spiel. At the end of the day, I never got the prices and I just went somewhere else. And I think it needs to be hand in hand. Can you deliver what you want to achieve through these campaigns? Um, if not, then kind of get those building blocks right before you do more damage to your brand 
but all of a sudden skipping all these other steps and then go straight into something digital that you just can't deliver for your clients. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other universe to this thing is is yeah. the reputational risk that comes with contracting with influencers who don't inherently understand your values as a business, the, you know, the yep. ins and outs of, of working with you. And, and we've seen just time and time again how that can go horribly pear-shaped and, and you know, produce a, a further kind of level of skepticism around the efficacy of the, of the, the channel. Which is a real shame, again, because when you and I talk about a brand of influencer marketing, that's not what we're talking about. So, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of work there to be done. I, you know, I think one of the big evolutions we're going to start to see over over the next couple of years is this 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 notion of values based marketing, right? Where we start to think about how how our brands inherent identity what it really stands for um and as we've seen more and more brands starting to market based on a stance rather than benefits or product features you know um you think of the the the, the patagonias and the nikes and you know these these ben and jerry's and uh those are just some examples but i think uh more and more we're starting to see brand on on all ends of the political spectrum creating yeah. a deep connection with uh their clients because of their unique points of view on on particularly interesting topics so i think that's that's something that we're going to start seeing emerging but yeah i just think i i don't think yeah i, I want to place more of the emphasis and responsibility on we've spoken about the role that brands have and we've spoken about the role agencies have but also just on on the influencers themselves because the very the the, the shortcut billboard approach to this work is just is not sustainable and i hear a lot of influencers going, oh, this is not working for us. And this is, you know, this is just not how it should be. And I'm going, but how have you changed it? How have you initiated different kinds of relationships? How have you packaged yourself to focus more on, you know, kind of long-term trust-based relationships with your clients rather than billboard style exchanges? And I think there's, there's a lot of work to be done in influencer circles, uh, wherever those are. <laughs> um, <laughs> To, to change the temperature of the engagement between, uh, you know, as, as I think we've seen a lot of maturity in the sponsorship space, in the, the yeah. sort of traditional sports sponsorship space in this regard, you know, in, in, in many ways inspired by and, and, and sparked by some, you know, some leading organizations around the world, whether it's the IPL in India or, you know, some of the leading um, NFL and NBA brands, some of the leading um, football uh, clubs, and we started to think very differently about that relationship and how to build integrity-based and you know values-based relationships with not only fans but brands as well, and just really look after that ecosystem. I think there's a lot to be learned from that from from an influencer perspective. No, you're absolutely right, and you have um, absolutely hit it on the head. For me, it's also about influencers taking a lot of responsibility. If you are approached by a brand or an agency that has deemed you to have the perfect fit for this brand and I think your values are amazing but if you as an influencer feel that there's a conflict it is on them to also decline those opportunities so it's not just them kind of doing everything and for everyone because at that point is where they their trust and their credibility is eroded and I feel like they need to start thinking about their influence if that's the path they go down as a business where you can't be everything to everyone and choose those projects very wisely so that you are kind of recognizable or 
or kind of connected to certain brands that really is good for your your own brand and fits your values, but also vice versa. So it's really this complementary relationship that it's a win-win in the end of the day. Yeah, I think you've said it better than I could have. Um, the, <laughs> no, definitely. the the This kind of disease around the pursuit of all opportunities. If you're trying to please everyone all of the time or you're taking on everything or you're trying to sound like everyone all of the time, you land up just with this kind of vanilla, meaningless, you know, kind of substanceless <laughs> identity or presence. I'm being, maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but um, the, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because there, there are many ways that digital has shown us as when I say us, I mean the gen, gen pop, right? Like the general population mm-hmm. to be quite, irresponsible in our thinking like you know our our conditioning has led us to believe all sorts of information and follow all sorts of of, of thought trains and there's much that's been said around this misinformation and disinformation so i don't want to go on a tangent there but one place it hasn't one place it's shown us up to be smart is i think that people and i see this a lot sort of in, in the influencer space generally customers can smell a rat very quickly they can smell an insincere representation or engagement very quickly so as as dumb as we've been in terms of news (laughs) uh, and information we've been kind of smart in terms of the integrity behind brand-based relationships and i don't know why that is i don't know why um, that seems to be a place where the consumer audience is really astute but what it does mean is that you know that clearly and obviously is not a not an approach that's paying dividends uh, for either party for the brand or for for the influencer so yeah i think it's harder work to do that and it's harder work yeah. to be selective and it's difficult to know what to say no to. But it was the same for us when we started Cerebra in 2006. We had to very quickly decide what types of clients we wanted to work with and didn't want to work with. We had to say no to some opportunities, not just because they weren't commercially viable, but because they weren't, we, they weren't values viable. You know, we, we mm-hmm. had a very tough decision firing one of the big four banks, which at that time was paying us a ridiculously profitable retainer but because our values weren't aligned we may or may not have had an opportunity with another one of the big four banks at the time but that's immaterial um (laughs) let's focus on the principles and and you know i just think that what you say no to defines you much better than what Mm -hmm. you say yes to and what you say no to is going to be determined almost exclusively by what you deem to be important and true and that's that is the essence, the DNA of your values. And I don't think that influencers no, are considering their values more important than their audience. So then that actually brings up something that I'm very passionate about as well, is having better regulation in the influence marketing space. I am one of those corporates who will easily call out a brand or an influencer for not being uh, transparent with their audiences. I just think even though audiences are amazing. And like you say, they we saw it in the last couple of weeks in a couple of campaigns where just the population was lambasting brands and influencers alike for not being transparent, for not being a good fit. But do you not think that if there are better regulation that we'll see less and less of this? And also it will kind of go a long way to kind of legitimize the channel a bit further and people not having this anti-influencer kind of attitude that we sometimes get. And that for us is then a bigger 
if you say education job to um, show people, but it does work if you do it the right way, if you align the right influences with the right brands and you kind of give them that creative freedom. I would just love to see more regulation around it instead of having the ARB being quite reactive to things. Um, you have to lodge a complaint. You can't be anonymous. And then they, they kind of rule. But other than that, there's no policing. And it's a slap on the wrist at the end of the day. All they do is tell you, please take down the content. It's more of a reputational risk. Mm. Um, but I would love to see that kind of coming more to the fore in South Africa. Yeah, I must confess my understanding of the existing regulatory frameworks and compliance frameworks is is um, infantile. I don't have a good good sense of of what's in place at the moment. Look, I want I want to say yes. I want to say yeah, that'll solve everything. But I also know how people work, and it appears that the more more structure and more rules you give uh, marketers, the more they attempt to break them. Uh, you know, yes. I'm, I'm more of a I'm more of a carrot than a stick person. I think that what will really shift the space is if kind of positively reinforced behavior becomes the norm and and that's re- again it's up to the but it, you know i understand that as i'm saying this how how naive i sound because it just typically doesn't happen i don't think it can be a bad thing but i think it's got to be you know it's got to allow for a lot of creative freedom it's got to allow for people to still invent and and discover new ways of building these relationships and 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 creating new opportunities if you get too prescriptive, that can also kill uh, the opportunity entirely, and we wouldn't want to see that happen. I, you know, I, I mean, I think that it would feel and look very differently if social networks felt and looked very differently. But I mean, mm. I, this is my kind of this is my bugbear right now. So it's obviously an X I'm going to grind a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you know, I'm like, oh, oh, I wish it could be different, but it, that is what it is, and um, mm. that I don't think is going to change anytime soon. So. Look, I think I think this is a very interesting time for the industry. I think there is a lot of scrutiny on these platforms. There is a lot of political influence um, all over the show. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in terms of um, personal uh, data, um, in terms of advertising, and in terms of governance over the next two years, I guess. I think there will be changes. I think there will be some consolidation. I think... I'm getting the sense that while there's been some stagnation in terms of innovation in the social networking space, that we might see some new upstarts springing up uh, in the next couple of years that might you know, change or challenge the, the incumbents, and that might be interesting. Uh, it hasn't really been – we haven't really seen anything interesting happen since sort of like 2007, 2008. So it's ripe for, it's ripe for disruption. And, yeah, I, for one, am, am very excited about the possibilities of that. But, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be fixed, and, and I guess – the decisions, it's its a little bit like doping in sport, right? Like kind of everybody does it. So, and everybody talks about it and everybody says it should be regulated, but still everybody does it. And if you don't do it, great, you're a principled person, but you also lose races. So it's its, it's really tough to to manage that dynamic. And while, you know, while we're, what we're talking about doesn't necessarily correlate to performance like it would in sport it still is a a predominant dysfunction and and needs to be addressed in some way shape or form so yeah do you do you make do you make doping legal for everyone and then level the playing fields or do you prevent (laughs) people from doping and hope that they you know it's one of those it's it's the age-old dilemma yeah look uh, i'm all for like i don't want it to be regulated to the point where you've got like a list of prescriptions the only thing they're asking people or influencers and brands to enforce is just add that this is being sponsored 
you are an ambassador. This was a gift. This is an ad. The rest is up to you. Like, happy days. Go for it. I just think it's really important that people who aren't necessarily in our industry kind of know when an influencer is being paid to say something, which is really, really important. I, like I, I mean, this is what blows me away, right? Like, and I, here I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to sound sanctimonious, and I'm going to apologize up front. <laughs> I'm sorry, not sorry, but I mean, I remember like early, early days of Twitter, like 2009, whatever. If I was talking about a project that we were doing with a client, I would disclaim that. I would exactly. say this is a project that we're doing, or I got to play with the new Galaxy Tab, and please do note that Samsung is a client, but I, I still think that this is amazing for these reasons. And um, there you go. And I would think that if you're a person that has a smidgen of integrity and self-respect, <laughs> you would do that because surely that builds credibility. Surely that makes your voice more authoritative, more trustworthy, more reliable in the, um, in the mix. I mean, I just can't see how that wouldn't be the case and how you wouldn't understand that. But again, I suppose if everybody's doping, then it's easier to dope. Um, you know? No, no, but this is exactly what my point is as well. If you are an influencer and these great brands or you've aligned with an amazing brand that you love and that you just, everything makes sense, why wouldn't you want to shout from the rooftops that I'm working with this freaking amazing brand? And it does build credibility. All the studies have shown over the last two years that no, no, no audiences mind if there's a hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored. They're actually proud of their influences. And if it still adds value to them and it's aligned, they don't care. They actually just think, geez, this person is doing amazingly well. So I don't understand it either. That's just me. Yeah. And, and, and the irony of it is just how it diminishes any real influence that you have, any real substance that yeah. you have. You know, your, your identity becomes so fragmented by, you know, in terms of whoever is throwing something free at you at any given point in time. It's just, it's no wonder it's a, it's a, an industry and, and forgive me, but here comes my little spicy take. It, it, it seems oh, characterized by a whole bunch of people that are diametrically opposed to the way they appear online. Like, they're devastatingly unhappy. They're overworked and underpaid. They are depressed and anxious. And it's because they're like, you, you constantly, you're constantly foregoing your own <laughs> identity and your own substance. You're, you're basically selling tiny pieces of your soul with every post. And I'm like, that's not going to work long term. And I think that is busy changing and I hope it continues to do so because yeah. I think people have figured that out and they've also figured out that they should find a niche that they're so passionate about and that they actually love because that's what's going to be the long the long game. Um, we know that a lot of these influencers who are huge now and huge followings and also are influential, they've built those audiences over years um five six years and if you're not passionate about what you do or what you're talking about you're going to be in and out of the game in a year or two and and then it's it's really of no consequence really yeah 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 the niche is where the power is the niche is where money is um i firmly believe Absolutely. that um and and if you are if you are in any shape or form you know kind of like most people I know, I know who have like got a set of interests that they care, care deeply about. There is a way to work hard enough to find your groove in that space. 
Um, absolutely. It's just, it's a different kind of hard work. No, absolutely. So then the, this bodes the question. There's so many articles out at the moment and over the last, I think since the pandemic started, they've just been flooding my inbox mm. about that this influencer marketing bubble is dying. It's going to burst soon. I would love to know your opinion on this. Perhaps if we're talking exclusively about human billboards, maybe the appeal, novelty, and sustainability of that's in question. But influence as a channel, connecting more intentionally with customers on a shared value basis, building long-term relationships with customers who are potentially even already part of your database that have significant or recognizable influence, cheapest, that's, that's, a, that's still an unmined opportunity. So if it's, if it's influence in the shallowest term, yeah, I guess maybe that bubble has burst. If it's influence in terms of what we're talking about, I don't think it's, we're at the tip of the iceberg yet. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. And I am so excited you said that because I just see it's such a young channel, especially in South Africa, even. It's just constantly evolving. And I think we are starting to delve deeper and deeper into what it means and also in ways of tools and reporting what we can provide to clients who's a bit skeptical. We can show them that we can measure different metrics. We can show them how it contributes to their their KPIs internally. So it's not just, like you say, this billboard. Um, it's actually mining that data, making sure we're speaking to the right audiences. And it's just delivering that message to an already opted in audience that's there for that. Good. We're aligned. <laughs> Virtual high five. Virtual high five. I know earlier you spoke about this omni-channel that we are entering into the marketing world, which I'm a huge fan of. Does that, in your mind, include traditional marketing or the traditional advertising? Does that in any shape or form kind of feeds into what we call our new media, so our digital influencer, et cetera? Totally does. Totally does. I mean, I was, I was, ch I was chatting to a gentleman who's launching a new wellness um, sort of biohacking startup, and we were talking about how he's he's invested an enormous amount of energy in digital content and digital marketing and advertising and looking to get into the influencer space as well. And we were talking about what you and I have discussed, this notion of do we know whether it's working or not? And can we evaluate the efficacy of that spend based on you know, the decisions people are making or not making uh, based on our yeah. efforts? And I'm like, you, you might find out that the most critical moment uh, in a in a person's journey is is at a particular stop street in a particular suburb uh, receiving a flyer like if we you know we have to be realistic about the fact that meeting a person in the moment of most need and where they're questioning something mm -hmm. is is it's got very little to do with the type of channel we're talking about if you start with the yeah. channel and work backwards you you've already made a mistake right nobody has to be on instagram nobody has to be on twitter nobody has to have a website even you, you know, like you have those things because they work in terms of fulfilling on the goals that you have set out to achieve. Some of the most effective brands in the world, some of the brands that are the most desirable, have got very minuscule and poorly administrated digital channels, which in, in fact, in a weird way, almost makes them more desirable. 
and and make it really difficult for you to get to but the, the product speaks for itself it's that you know so so mm-hmm. i think we've got to be very careful that we just assume all of these things are like default must-haves and we should spend on you need to know why and how people are buying from you and when and you know what their mindset is and Yes, for a very long time, <laughs> Google dominated that because I guess we were all you know, sort of very excited about the fact that we could ask Google questions and get answers. And we were astonished when ads appeared that you know, kind of answered the very question that we were asking Google at that particular point in time. But I don't know when last you opened Google.com and typed in a search phrase. Like we just don't, the way of yeah. our behaviors are changing radically, right? Our filters are changing radically. Our search behavior is changing radically we have to think differently about reaching clients in the most and making sure that whatever channel we are using if it's a deck of colorful flyers or the most advanced um ai based you know programmatic marketing and you know available to us now regardless of which thing we're doing they're speaking to each other we're speaking with the same voice it's integrated it, it feels like you're dealing with the same brand you know so those are the things that i think are still big opportunities for us to improve on No, absolutely. And to your point is figuring out, obviously, where your target market kind of consumes media. And then you have to have several touch points. There's no ways that someone's going to see something once. And unless that is what they need at that point, they're not going to buy it. They're going to see it on their social media. Then they're going to be driving to work. They're going to maybe see a billboard. Then they're going to be at work and reading an online article and see a banner then they might, like you say, stop at a stop street and get a flyer. And then only will they go, oh, wow, maybe I should check this out. And then maybe they'll go into Google and type and find out more about it. So it really is about that that omni-channel. And very important what you said is that it all speaks with the same voice and the same key messaging. Otherwise, it is lost. Yep, that's the challenge. It is a huge challenge. I mean, you come from agency background. Uh, when last did you see a couple of agencies from different disciplines sit around and play nice? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's been that constant uh, interplay between the idea of being a one-stop integrated shop and being like specialist, right? Yeah. And I always erred on the side of wanting to be a specialist. I'm not saying that's the answer, but um, yeah, our inability either as one-stop shops to offer an equivalent standard or quality of offering as the independent shops or as independent shops Mm -hmm. to be able to collaborate together has only served to damage the industry and the client's level of trust about what we do. And then we still complain that, oh, you you know, consultants are starting to eat our lunch. Well, we could have done better. Um, If we, you know, the only reason you lose business is because you can't fulfill on the need that you promised you would fulfill on. So, you know, don't be bitter, be better. No, exactly. And I think it is getting better I think agencies and consultants are starting to understand understand that, and so so are brands. So let's hope the way of the future. Yeah, I feel like I was like super grumpy there. Sorry about that. <laughs> not no, to be not at all. Yeah, I think everyone coming from an agency background, we're all grumpy about that. <laughs> Slightly jaded. Oh yeah. So, Mike, what industry trends or trend? are you maybe most excited about at the moment or for 2021? Yeah, I I mean, I think I touched on that briefly. um, And in that, I think the social network incumbents are ripe for disruption. And whether that means that they change their own models or way of being or payment mechanisms or whatever it might be, um, or we see upstarts that start to force them to think very differently about their value proposition. Either way, I think that's that's an exciting prospect 
um, for the future. Other than that, I mean, I'm not thinking a hell of a lot about kind of general marketing trends other than to acknowledge that I think brands are having to be far more intentional in the current climate. And I think that's showing mm-hmm. up in, in organizations that, you know, kind of have already done a great job, but just been amplified and those that have struggled to do that for a long time are being diminished. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens in the social network realm over the next couple of years. Everyone is. I think we're on that cusp of everything just kind of changing a bit for the better. We've already seen even on Instagram, that people aren't interested on that highly polished kind of curated content anymore. People want to see the real stuff because that's what they can relate to and it makes them feel better and it makes them feel normal, I suppose. One certainly hopes, huh? Yeah. So for our last question, Mike, Hmm. is please can you give our listeners your top three tips when they consider a digital marketing campaign? Sure. So I guess the the first tip would be be very explicit about your intentions, uh, whether that's the objective that you're working towards, the metric that you decide is going to determine success. Uh, but know know what it is that you're working towards, and make sure you you the client, you the agency are are on the same page about that. You're speaking the same language about that. The the second thing I think I'd talk about is think about values as a meeting point between you and the audience rather than demographics. You, you might be excluding a whole portion of your audience that is very valuable to you because you're not thinking through that lens. And then the third thing is, I think, you know, look, look to invest in quality engagements from an influencer perspective rather than quantity. Stop thinking about uh, audience sizes and start thinking about audience efficacy. You know, obviously this relates specifically to the influencer space, but I think brands are going to experience a whole new dimension of value when they start engaging with uh, influencers on on the basis of values and and quality and integrity rather than just how many people might see the content. That's great, great tips. And we also always say to clients, please don't look at follower account. Let's just look at the things that aren't vanity metrics and see how they're values align, see how their audiences respond to the type of content you want to do and the messaging. It's so much more important to reach 20 people that's really going to listen to this influence. So then 2,000 people who are just going to eye roll, I suppose. 100%. Yeah. Did, did behavior change is the question, right? Exactly. So Mike, before we let you go, where can listeners connect with you online if they want to know more about you and the exciting things that you get up to? Uh, yeah, I'm, um, I'm available on, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, at Mike Stopforth. Um, I've got a website and that kind of is a meeting point for all of these things. Uh, it's MikeStopforth.com and a podcast, uh, just like you, uh, called the One-Eyed Man podcast, which talks about leadership in technology and impact. And yeah, that, those are, that about covers it, I think. Absolutely. And I follow you on all of them and I listen to your podcast and I think you are amazing. So keep doing what you're doing. So just thanks again for joining us today. I've really, really enjoyed our chat and I think you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you for the opportunity and thanks to your listeners. It's a big pleasure. Goodbye, Mike. Bye-bye.